OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Uh, well, Carlos, I, I want to uh, appreciate it and thank you very much for joining us today. And like we do, we just jump right into things. So I like to kind of casually kick her off and then we just jump right in and go right at it. So uh, welcome to uh, Ask an Angel. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, the audience, um, as they know that you're in, uh, you're in Mexico, in Mexico City. And very excited at the opportunity to dive into and, and learn more about uh, the ecosystem and everything that's going on in Mexico. But uh, the first and the easiest way for us to start is uh, maybe you could give us a little bit more on your background. So uh, where you've come from, what you've been up to, where you are now, and then where you're looking to go. So kind of that easy lifeline. And then uh, one thing about you that nobody would know. Great. Uh, uh, thanks, uh, Jeffrey, for... Uh, having us here. So a little uh, background on myself. Uh, I come from, you know, the traditional finance industry, work in uh, corporate banking at uh, HSBC here in Mexico, uh, then worked for a, a fund focused on sustainable projects, uh, particularly in, in water and energy projects here in Mexico. Uh, then I continued my professional journey at a, in corporate banking at a regional bank that's one of the leading digital banks right now in, in, in Mexico. Uh, then I decided to do my, uh, my MBA in the US uh, with a focus on, on, on private equity and, and venture capital. And after my MBA, I worked for the venture arm of a family office in, in Boston that wanted to tap into the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And then I returned to uh, Mexico and joined as investor and director of finance for a FinTech startup that provides loan to the underserved uh, SME market in, in, in Mexico. And that's when, you know, we, we realized that there was a, a gap in, in this early stage funding ecosystem in, in FinTech particularly as well. Uh, uh, so that's when we decided to set up, you know, AMG Block, which is a, a seed stage, a VC fund focused on FinTech in Mexico and uh, Spanish speaking LATAM. Uh, uh, you know, FinTech, we see it across different business verticals you know, payments, loans, wealth management, tech, blockchain. Uh, we believe, you know, technology will play a, a key role in, in, you know, financial inclusion in the region. And uh, blockchain is definitely one of the technologies within our scope. Uh, um, so that's, you know, sort of the uh, brief overview on how we got here. And, and something that, you know, most people don't know about me uh, is uh, I'm, uh, so both my parents are from Peru. So uh, uh, my parents... They met in Peru, got married in Peru, and then uh, came here to Mexico over 40 years ago. So I was born and raised here, uh, uh, but I have, I guess, strong uh, a connection to other, you know, uh, Latin American cultures. And, and that's obviously one of the reasons that we're also looking to expand sort of the, the, the Latin American opportunity uh, through the fund, you know. I love it. Uh, I'm a big fan of Peru. I, uh, I spent some time uh, traveling through there. I've gone through lots of um, countries in uh, uh, Latin America, Central America. Um, big fan of, uh, I guess you can say, the Spanish um, culture and the yeah. Spanish-speaking uh, countries. But uh, Peru was quite fun. I, I did um, uh, some trekking through there and climbed some one of your only mountain that's big in, in Peru, I guess. 
Um, so that was fun. And uh, overall, it's a great experience and a lot of great people. But of course, Mexico is just as amazing too. Um, as we talked before, I'm a huge fan of Mexico City. Uh, it's so active and uh, crazy big that yeah. uh, you can just get lost walking around there for five minutes and not know where you started. So it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, so, so it's similar to, you know, uh, New York and L.A. combined, you know, uh, so big but you have some like clusters around the city. You have to know where to move around and everything, but overall it's a great place to visit, you know, culturally, uh, gastronomically, it's, uh, it's amazing. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you've been a part of, you know, Latin America for a while. Yeah. Big fan. I've been there a few times. Uh, just from a side fact standpoint, I believe in, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Mexico city in the last 10 years has sunk more than three inches. Um, In, in the last three years, the entire city, sorry, in the last 10 years, the entire city has dropped that much. So the, primarily the city center, yeah. It was built on top of a lake. Uh, so when you go to the city center, you'll see some buildings that are, you know, below ground level. Uh, uh, I'm not sure about how much every year we sink, but we will continue sinking for a while, you know? Yeah, they, they were saying that, that it's uh, something that they can't control. So they were actually considering at some point building another city to offset the weight of everything that was going on in Mexico city and to see yeah. if they could rebuild it in a different fashion because of it. Um, and I don't, I think it was because it would screw up the aquifers and, and everything else that's running in the city at, at some point in time. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, it's an interesting uh, dynamics that we have here. In, in, and that's, you know, what, one of the peculiarities when, when it, uh, when we had some of these, uh, um, Earthquakes, right? The city center. I mean, if you're there, which all the buildings are built on top of the water, right? You have a lot of movement. So uh, whenever it, we have an earthquake here, that's why it's so chaotic. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, we have the pros and cons of living in Mexico City, you know? Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing. So I, I kind of want to uh, dive back into your past because I find that a lot of what we've done gets us to where we are today. And, you know, you spent some time working in the, in the banking side. And of course, uh, oddly enough, you're investing in fintech and blockchain. So I'm sure there has to be some coincidence that's occurred there. But uh, in that process, can you give us an idea of, of what that experience really detailed? Because um, the banking side being in numbers, it really does drive home what every startup needs to focus on, which is understanding their business modeling how their financial models are working and how they can drive and, and make money in sales. So maybe a little bit more on how you kind of explored that banking side and how valuable was that before you went in and did your MBA? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the banking sector, I'd say in, in Mexico and in, in Latin America, it's a little different than in other, you know, more developed markets. I mean, when I had an opportunity to work in, in traditional finance, I mean, we focus mostly on, on the 2%, right, of, of the uh, SME market, for instance. Uh, um, so so th there is a huge, you know, opportunity to provide financial services and solutions to, one, the underbanked population, to the underserved SME market. And that's, you know, something that the fintech sector has uh, uh, been focused on, right? I mean, when you look at sort of the statistics in, in, in Mexico alone, less than 50% of the population is uh, uh, banked, right? So, but we have a lot of uh, uh, smartphone penetration, right? 
so, so this uh, uh, you know technology definitely plays a role in, in you know reaching these unbanked populations and providing the services that the traditional finance institutions don't provide either because it's too costly, it's too much of a hassle, right? Or they just don't think it uh, makes sense business-wise, right? Uh, um, so, I mean, uh, it's definitely an, an, an interesting ecosystem and one that particularly uh, uh, fintech companies across different business verticals are trying to, to solve, you know? And are you finding that with that experience and then going to the U.S. and experiencing the MBA, um, that that's kind of shifted your mindset on how these banks were operating and maybe the time you were like, oh, this seems reasonable. And then you're in the U.S. And you're like, this is terrible. We need to get back there and correct this. Yeah, I mean, when, I, mean I was lucky enough, obviously, to, to experience uh, that uh, uh, whole experience of living out in, in the U.S., right? Uh, uh, and it's interesting, right? I mean, you have this one-click solutions when you go out and, and have lunch with friends, you Venmo them and, and everything's settled, right? Uh, uh, and pretty much the entire, you know, financial uh, railways are, are, are already set in the U.S. Uh, but I experienced personally, so uh, I was trying to transfer money from my Mexican account to the, my U.S. account. And it took probably around two months. Uh, and at what point I was like, I don't know where my money is. Because it wasn't it wasn't the same bank that I was using, so obviously the, the, the there's a triangulation in, in the in the transfer of funds, and I, I had to contact my local bank, my U.S. bank, and none of them were able to tell me where my money was. Right? I mean, at one point it was probably somewhere in Europe because they were triangulating my my transfer, and these type of problems, I mean, could be you know uh, 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 solved relatively easier with technology, right? I mean, blockchain technology obviously plays a, a huge role there, uh, but the traditional sort of railways are obviously poised for disruption, right? Uh, and that's, you know, that experience of being able to, you know, do uh, my everyday banking uh, uh, in a seamless way wasn't something that I used to experience when I was back in Mexico. And it's something that to this day, I don't experience, right? I mean, right now, if you wanted to open a, 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 a business account, you have to go to a branch, you know, have to go through their entire KYC process. And all of that could take probably a month or, or two, right? And if within your company, uh, uh, say, uh, uh, business purposes, the bank identifies something that they are not familiar with, then you'll go through a different KYC process that's going to take you three or four months uh, to just open an account, right? So that obviously hinders the, the ability of startups to start operating relatively See, you know. Uh, uh, so, I mean, it's definitely a space that's uh, uh, going to change in, in the next few years. And we believe, you know, technology will definitely play a huge role there. And do you find that what is the, what's the main catalyst for banks in other countries not to accept this form of change or to accept that there is better, faster ways to transfer funds or to make things happen? Is it just a laissez-faire style attitude of employees or is it uh, the aggressive side that they don't match that aggressive outcome that European banks or um, North American banks are pushing? Like what is the, what's the downside? And there's obviously a lot of upside 
Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors. I mean, uh, one one uh, uh, one of the main ones being obviously the the costs involved, uh, uh, the sunk costs, right? I mean, these traditional banking systems already, you know, deployed a lot of money to build the, the railways that they're currently operating, right? So they don't want to just discard all of these investments made uh, because there's a new technology that's, you know, going to change the way they operate. Another aspect is the educational gap, right? I mean, when, when uh, uh, this is a funny story in Mexico, uh, um, the new fintech law, uh, which was uh, uh, um, put into place a couple of years ago, initially contemplated regulating virtual assets, right? So obviously behind virtual assets, you have blockchain technology. Uh, uh, but when uh, in 2018, when the, the government uh, um, entities had a, a huge change and, and the new governor of the Central Bank of Mexico came out and said, you know, blockchain is too complicated for us. We're just going to put it on a sandbox environment and not regulate right now uh, the, the virtual asset environment, right? Uh, so that lack of understanding of, you know, technologies or the potential that new technologies coming out to the market could have on uh, of the banking system is definitely a, a, an entry barrier for them to adopt, right? But we've seen changes. I mean, when you look at, for instance, Italy, uh, um, over, I think, 80 banks are currently uh, uh, exploring, you know, working with blockchain technology to have a more seamless uh, banking experience in the country. Uh, uh, in, in, and, you know, uh, uh, there's innovation going on, but it's, you know, going to take some time, I'd say. So do you find that um, the banks are spending, because it has to do with currency and finance, do you think most of the time that the banks are trying to regulate internally fraud as they are externally fraud. So it's kind of a, a tough way to change the model or change the ship. So it opens up for opportunities for people to kind of take and bring in new uh, startups to bring in new customers and to manage them and a bank to just buy a company versus spending their time trying to uh, manage and regulate their own staff because I'm sure fraud and I've heard many stories is pretty prevalent even inside the bank because when you're around money, I'm sure that there's problems. And then when you're on the outside, there's obviously just as much fraud. So do you think it's more of the fact that it's been, or part of the, the problem is that it's been around for so long that they haven't been able to just get ahead of the problem and that the problems just built up so significantly that they can't keep up and change it? Yeah. I mean, I'd say it's a combination of factors. I mean, Obviously, the time required uh, uh, to train the people inside, uh, to to uh, train the people outside as well. I mean, when, as a customer, you want the whole experience to be as seamless as possible, right? But the banks have to, and not only banks. I mean, the, the, the entire, I'd say, finance industry has to take the necessary measures to avoid this type of frauds, right? I mean, uh, we see it in, in 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 not only on the traditional finance industry, but in in crypto as well. I mean, the whole ICO boom proved to be, you know, uh, 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 that a lot of companies were, uh, you know, frauds or, or, or didn't uh, say uh, or did what they set out to do, right? So a lot of money was lost. Why? Because there was a lack of, you know, KYC or AML practices uh, or even a due diligence from part of the, you know, the investors, right? Uh, or those that participated in all of these ICOs. Uh, so, you know, it's a combination of factors. I mean, 
like you said, I mean, if, if you work at internally at a bank, uh, uh, you'll, you'll always have that, you know, uh, 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 temptation to say it in some way, right? Yep. Uh, so yeah, it's a, a financial educational uh, process that has to go not only inside, but outside the, the, the traditional finance industry. You know? And how much of, you know, kind of currently now and, and um, now that you've jumped into working on your own fund and building this up, um, how much of that experience that you've gone through working in the banks is aligning up to how you make investments? Uh, is, it, is it helping? Is it something that you're utilizing as, thank God I have this because I wouldn't be doing this because it's so complicated on how banks treat uh, customers, how banks treat startups, how we treat startups, and then how blockchain can fit into this. It's so new. So how have you kind of evaluated that perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, having the opportunity to work, you know, inside a bank, uh, you get to know sort of the opportunities and challenges that, you know, internally you encounter, right? So all these startups trying to focus on solving some of these issues are definitely an, an opportunity and something that we take a closer look, right? Because why we've been there, we've lived there, right? Uh, whenever we see, you know, a startup trying to solve a problem that we personally experienced, it just makes, you know, uh, uh, sense to, to, to consider it as part of the, 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 uh, the portfolio itself, you know? Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, uh, that opportunity to have the, the operational side of, of the business certainly gives us uh, an inner edge, I'd say, when, when evaluating some of the, the startups working around some of these solutions. You know? I love it. No, it plays a big part. It builds credibility for the fund that you're building, that you've got this experience, and you're investing in, in fintech, which is pretty prevalent. And if, if you can't see the problem, you're probably not going to make the investment because uh, a lot of the times, and, and correct me if um, you see this different, but a lot of startups tend to build something that they think is a problem, but indirectly no one else does. So they end up spending a lot of time, effort and money and they haven't got market fit. So a lot of times you run into that issue where, Hey, I built this great product, but I can't seem to sell it through. And maybe it wasn't validated properly. And, and maybe you're able to catch a lot of that in that blockchain and FinTech space. Yeah. And it's something that happens in, in, in not only in the FinTech space in the other industries as well, you know, uh, a lot of startups start building a solution and then try to find the problem, right? Uh, uh, which doesn't really uh, uh, make sense in, in depending on where, what, what sector or geography you're operating, right? Uh, uh, but yeah, it definitely gives us, I'd say, a bit of an edge having been through that specific uh, uh, problem ourselves, you know? I like it. Is there any specific area right now that's going on in Mexico that's kind of a hotbed I know in the past few years, there was, uh, you're getting into regulator systems and things that are trying to, uh, a lot of the banks will feed into one area so that they can all learn from the different fraud things that are occurring. Uh, I don't know if that's a global fix for every bank, but I'm assuming some banks are way more cutting edge and way more ahead of the curve than other banks. So are there things that are really hot and prevalent in Mexico and in Latin America where um, startups are really popping up, focusing on these specific areas in the air, in the domain that you're servicing. Yeah. Um, so right now, uh, payments is obviously a huge, you know, opportunity. Uh, I mean, when you look at, for instance, the, the the remittance market, this corridor between the U.S. And, and Mexico is one of the biggest in the world. But it's a, 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 an old process, right? When people in in the U.S. send money back home the commissions are 
upwards to 10%, right? So if, and, and the average amount is $300. Uh, so if you send $300 and they take $30 right out of the bat, I mean, there's obviously a problem there. And, and, and uh, uh, a lot of uh, startups are trying to, you know, solve that. I mean, the issue here is you have such traditional legacy institutions like, you know, Western Union, uh, which they're trying to innovate in the space, but it's not going to be that easy to move them aside, Right. Uh, so payments obviously represents a huge opportunity and it's a, an entryway also to bank the unbanked, right? I mean, once you provide, you know, a, a, a payment railway, you can start offering different financial ser- services like, you know, loans, credit cards, uh, even insurance. I mean, insurance represents a huge opportunity in, in, in LATAM as a whole, uh, where most people don't even own any type of insurance, right? Uh, um so that's one particular sector where there's a lot of uh, innovations, a lot of startups trying to re- uh, operate in, 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 uh, uh, to solve some of the problems. And it's one of the uh, business verticals in Mexico, at least, that currently falls within the, the fintech law. So that also provides you know, a, a lot of certainty to the investors and the entire stakeholders in the a payment uh, ecosystem, right? Because they're operating under a regulated entity. Uh, um, so that's one of the uh, uh, sectors that's definitely been growing the past few years. Uh, loans, you know, represents a huge opportunity. I mean, going back to uh, 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 what I was saying about, you know, working banks. I mean, in, in Mexico, 98% of the GDP comes from, you know, SMEs. And it's a sector that's, underserved by the traditional finance industry. So uh, SMEs have to look for alternative means of uh, of financing. And obviously, uh, a lot of these new fintech uh, uh, solutions provide these alternative uh, uh, resources, right? Uh, Wealth management is uh, uh, definitely an interesting space. I mean, the, the investment culture in Mexico right now is not that common. Uh, but, you know, these new generations of millennials uh, that are more digital adept uh, uh, are looking for, you know, solutions or, or easy manners to actually invest some of their, uh, uh, of, of their income. So uh, uh, there are a few players working around that specific space. Um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, some of the, the, the hot industries right now. Obviously, there are other business verticals that uh, 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 will definitely play a key role, like you said, identity management, uh, uh, enterprise resource management, uh, um, you know, a, a blockchain, I mean, going back to part of our specific, I mean, crypto is a huge uh, uh, use case right now in, in Latin America as a whole, uh, you know, in uh, uh, countries like Argentina, Venezuela, that given the macroeconomic environment that they're experiencing, they look at crypto as a store of value, right? Uh, and they have to go through a centralized entity like the exchanges to get access to this type of, uh, um, uh, of store of value as Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? So that's also, I mean, falls within FinTech, you know, the, the, the use of uh, blockchain uh, technology and crypto as a whole. DeFi is another interesting space. A lot of the innovation going out outside of Latin America, but a lot of users in Latin America, right? Uh, so yeah, it's uh, definitely exciting times to be in, in the space right now. 
Well, you've got a massive population that you're feeding, right? And uh, one of the interesting things you mentioned was that 50% of, um, I don't know if it's just in Mexico or it was in LATAM, uh, that don't have bank accounts. So how does, how does the fintech space start to attack that? Is it, you mentioned the mobile phone, that's pretty prevalent. And in other countries in India, they're having this face with the same problem in Africa um, as a whole continent. Um, they're all kind of going through the same change, but they're using, you know, maybe mobile phone, like tap phones um, to kind of solve some of those immediate problems. What types of uh, businesses are trying to tackle uh, the unbankable and are they trying to convert them into banking? Um, and is it, is it worth the, the effort or it's, I'm assuming that means if they're unbankable, they're untaxable. So is there really a value that you're even trying to drive out of that populace, even though it's a massive number of people? Yeah, I mean, is it profitable or, or, or worth it? I mean, just look at Nubank, right? Nubank uh, from, from Brazil, they currently have a, around 30 million uh, users, I think, and they're currently valued at $25 billion, right? And they're expanding to Mexico, obviously, because the opportunity, I mean, Brazil and Mexico are two of the uh, biggest countries in LATAM with the largest population, obviously. Uh, uh, so, so I'd say... Yeah, it's definitely worth it. Uh, and, uh, you know, being able to provide, you know, even the, the uh, debit account and then start, you know, educating them and providing other financial solutions will definitely expand, you know, sort of the, 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 uh, the, the solutions that some, someone like Newbank currently offers, right? Yes, the debit account is just the entryway and a way for them to experience, you know, uh, the 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 uh, traditional financial experience. I mean, when you look at Mexico, most of transactions are done with cash, right? Uh, I, I think it, the, the, it's over ninety percent of business transactions transactions is done in cash, right? And oh, right now with COVID, uh, uh, obviously, cash represents an additional risk, right? So there's been this massive digital adoption into uh, uh, tech solutions that, uh, uh, you know, sort of minimize the risk of getting COVID, right? So, yes, COVID has had, obviously, a, a big downside on, in, in globally and in the region, but it's uh, driven this digital adoption into, you know, fintechs, e-commerce, uh, you know, even healthcare, uh, telemedicine is, is right now a, 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 an interesting space to look at. Uh, so, so yeah, it's um, uh, it's a worth looking at, you know, how technology has an impact on all of these uh, different uh, businesses, you know. Oh, I agree. And it's another great point you made is that you've got a high number of users that are transacting in, in currency and cash. Uh, versus using digital credit cards, loan dollars, whatever that might be. And with that high transaction, now you're shifting that model again. So you're pushing people to start using more digital transfers, more digital means to do something. In Canada, I think two, three years ago, I did an assessment on cash to um, credit card, and they have been making big push over the last five years to credit card and interact. Uh, massive. And it was probably sitting at about 40% were uh, still using cash. Today, it's probably down to 5%. And uh, I'm assuming that 5% is just non-traceable. And that's probably the reason for it um, because most people don't care anymore. They're just like transact, touch and go, right? So I think the pandemic has helped elevate that process. 
Now, when you're going into that 50% of people that are unbankable, and there's probably 10% that are in Canada, whatever that number is, and in North America, it's probably higher too, is that there's a lot of transactions that are happening in smaller SMEs and cash is the only way to make that transfer because they don't want to pay for the system because they lose profit and you know they're surviving off the dollars that they make in that transaction. So uh, there's probably going to be some good solutions that can offer that value. And I think from the um, viewership side of what we're doing is really trying to explore and understand like, hey, there's some opportunities here um, that are in this market and it's not being filled yet. So there is potential for other fintechs blockchain events to start doing something in Mexico. And, and what would be that process that you would uh, recommend if um, it's always, I find companies that operate in a country like Mexico tend to operate and then go other where other places, they all want to tack, tackle the market in America um, without tackling their own market. And then people that are in America, they want to tackle their market in America because it's so massive. And then eventually in a few years, they will start to go out to other regions um, but I find that there's never like Chile has an amazing center and they try to hold everybody there, but then they're all going somewhere else right away um, because they don't feel the markets there. And, and how do you get people to stay in your market and operate it? Because uh, I think it's actually really smart to stay in Mexico. The amount of people there and the amount of transactions uh, is massive. So how do you get these businesses to one, stay and operate, but two, build in long-term plans, even if they are a, a North American company? Yeah, it's uh, an interesting dynamic. I mean, I'd say in, in Latin America, like you said, uh, uh, Chile, for instance, it's, I mean, the population there is what? Probably around 10 million. Uh, Mexico, we are 120 million, right? Uh, so, so 12 times the size of Chile. So what we've seen in some of these Spanish-speaking Latin countries is once they prove the, their, their business model locally, they tend to expand to other uh, Latin countries. Mexico being the biggest is obviously their, naturally their, their, their second uh, uh, choice. So, and we've seen, uh, you know, uh, some great successes in, in, in the region like uh, Rappi from Colombia, right? Uh, which is right now a unicorn. They got investment from SoftBank, but I'd say they're, Growth actually came from tackling the Mexican market, right? Mm. Uh, um, so, so this, you know, market dynamics of you know Latin countries expanding to other regions, obviously uh, uh, Mexico be being a, a huge player there, is because of the, the market opportunity, right? And when it comes from Mexico to other countries, it's you know the the, the culturality, the similarities between Spanish speaking Latin are so similar, obviously the language uh, uh, that you could see the entire region as a whole, right? Brazil is a monster that uh, uh, it's a little different, but outside of Brazil, I mean, you could look at Latam, Spanish speaking Latam as, as an entire market opportunity. And that's why some of these Mexican startups that, you know, sort of prove their business locally, they want to start expanding to some of these tech hubs like Colombia, Chile, uh, uh, Peru, you know, uh, uh, so so it's an interest, interesting dynamic there, and the the um, you know closeness of uh, uh, Mexico with the U.S. also represents sort of a, a, an entryway into the U.S. market. I mean, the Latin population in the U.S. is huge, uh, and it's only continuing to grow, right? Uh, so being able to 
you know, provide value to, you know, Latin roots of people living in the U.S. with Latin American backgrounds could eventually provide an entryway into the U.S. market, which, like you said, I mean, it's one of the biggest in the world, right? So, so this, this, you know, market dynamics are interesting, and, and that's why we've seen some of these startups go that way, you know? No, it makes sense. Um, and it's, uh, it sounds like it's a very exciting time in Mexico and that uh, startups around the world and including um, investors need to start looking at this market more because it's, uh, it is a really uh, large market and it's starting to digitize and pick up and move pretty quick. Yeah, and we've started to see, you know, international VCs and, and investors tapping into LATAM, but it's still a, a very nascent ecosystem. I mean, the VC landscape in, in, in Mexico and Spanish-speaking LATAM is very small right now. So there is a huge, you know, opportunity to continue funding innovation, entrepreneurship, and at the earliest stages, right? Uh, uh, so, yeah, it's definitely an opportunity for some of these uh, large institutional players to look at the, the Latin American opportunities. I love it. Um, one other, uh, I, I guess, just before we go into the rapid fire questions, I have one more kind of bigger question. And that is, you know, through the time that you've been working in um, across this, uh, the networks that you've been in, involved in, uh, of course, in the investment side, the capital side, um, have you come across any real exciting stories of just one of those heartfelt stories of what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Um, and it really blew your mind how this company just went from nothing to heroes or something along those lines that uh, just blew you away on what it takes. Uh, I always like to find that one story that just blows your mind that you couldn't believe happened. And it was amazing to see. Um, yeah. I mean, there are, I mean, there are a lot in, in Latam. Uh, but, I mean, one that recently comes to mind is a, a, a company called Aldo here in Mexico. It's a, a neobank. They are, uh, they've been in the market for less than five years, and they just raised a $42 million round, one of the biggest Series A round in, in, in Mexico. And the, the, when you listen to the founder, Angel, uh, he comes from... Uh, a, a small state in, in Mexico, right? So he experienced firsthand, obviously, this, this uh, uh, lack of financial inclusion. Uh, and uh, he started building a solution around that. Uh, and now Albo is one of the leading neobanks in, in, in Mexico. And, you know, you listen to some of these entrepreneurs and, and their stories about, you know, how uh, they've experienced firsthand all the problems and, and how they uh, decided to tackle that uh, uh, opportunity to build a solution around that. And it's, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of cases like this, uh, but that's one that comes to mind. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, the, 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 I'd say the beauty of, you know, uh, 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 a country like Mexico, you know, you have such diverse uh, population, right, from, Carlos Lim being one of the richest guys in the world to, you know, people living in, in pretty much slums, right? So you're able to get a, a, a first-hand experience on all of the opportunities across the entire stack, right? From the popular sector to the middle market uh, to the 1% of the 1%, right? Uh, uh, so this, uh, uh, you know, dynamics uh, across Mexico and, and, and Latam as a whole, uh, uh, you'll find a lot of this, 
uh, uh, exciting uh, experiences from entrepreneurs all around. No, that's awesome. No, it's a good story. Uh, and uh, I think if I remember correctly, Carlos Slim actually invests in a lot of startups. Their, their entity does the, a lot of investing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they have the amount of money he has. Uh, I'd be investing across, you know, the entire uh, uh, ecosystem, you know, startups. Uh, I mean, obviously he, he's, uh, uh, he holds one of the biggest companies in, in, in LATAM as a whole. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's a mentality that started to change, right? Because Carlos Slim is, I think, 80-something years old. Uh, so you don't see a lot of people this age investing at the early stages, right? Yep. So it's, uh, I'd say, a family office a sort of uh, a practice that they've been uh, applying in the ecosystem, and they've started to, you know, invest across the entire stack. So, so yeah. For sure. Well, I know there's a really good ecosystem in Chihuahua, Mexico, because I spent uh, some time there going to, uh, uh, I spoke at a pitch event in um, uh, a LATAM investment community. So uh, shout out to the peeps in Chihuahua because it was <laughs> awesome to be there. Uh, but uh, yeah, I love it. So Carlos, we're going to jump into the rapid fire questions. Ready, man. All right. So first question, how did you get started in investing in startups? Um, so the first, uh, you know, angel investment that I made was probably around 10 years ago. Uh, I had a friend come to me and, and tell me about this e-commerce opportunity, uh, to import goods from China. Right. Uh, um, so we had a, a common friend that was living in China at the time and he was telling us about, you know, the, all the innovation going on there, how cheap the products were, how it, an enormous opportunity we represent to, you know, import all these products to Mexico and start selling them uh, here. So that was the first time I, I, I the, and the decision was in, in a day, pretty much, right? And it was a brief uh, experience. I mean, we had some great returns, but at the time we didn't have any of us like specifically focused on running the business. You know, one of the early learnings that we have as, as entrepreneurs so we decided to close the shop, but uh, that was the first time, you know, I, I sort of came into this space and uh, never looked back. Man. I love it. That's awesome. Uh, what's your favorite part of investing? Uh, my favorite part is, uh, you know, getting to know people, uh, uh, learning about new business ideas, new technologies, new solutions. Uh, uh, you know, being able to learn something new every day is definitely one of the uh, uh, exciting parts of, you know, being in, in the investment side of the table. I like it. Uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? Uh, so right now our target is to invest in uh, around five companies per year. Uh, um, so have a, a, a portfolio of around the 15 companies for the, for, for the fund one. Yeah. And that the fund one is going to be 10 million, correct? Yeah, exactly. That's our target fund site right now. Okay, good. Uh, any, well, any specific verticals you're going to focus on? I know the answer, but we'll reemphasize it one more time. Yeah, uh, obviously, given our expertise, uh, right now our focus is fintech, which encompasses different business verticals, like like I was saying. Um, but yeah, that's where you know we're able to add more value to the entrepreneurs that we work. You know, our, our goal is to bring a, a hands-on approach. You know, through our experience as operators, entrepreneurs in the fintech space, and investors. 
So yeah, that's our current focus right now. I love it. Uh, is there any requirements that you need before you make it a commitment on the due diligence side from, it could be anything like what's the specific thing that you really look for to make sure you make that uh, investment outside of it being your buddy? What's the, uh, what's the thing you look for the most? Uh, yeah, we try to look, you know, past the traditional due diligence uh, uh, sort of format. So uh, we obviously look at, you know, the, the team, uh, the market opportunity, uh, the, the business timing. Obviously, I mean, if you came out with a solution like uh, Netflix in 2000, you know, timing wasn't great, right? So that's uh, uh, one. Um, the... Uh, um, the scalability, obviously, of the of the of the business, the technology stack for us is very important. Uh, um, the the key differentiators, obviously, of the of the team and, and and the startup. That's those are some of the you know key components that we try to focus on initially. I mean, part of our thesis is to invest at the seed stage. So obviously, a lot of the uh, uh, traditional. I'd say due diligence materials are not there yet. So we try to focus on, on others fundamentals. Okay. And you have a timeline for investment from the first conversation to the investment? Yeah, we try to be as agile as possible. I mean, uh, uh, depending obviously on how long we've known the entrepreneurs or, or the opportunity, we, we try to be as agile between two and, and eight weeks right now. Okay, perfect. Um, is there anything else that... Uh, will help you um, align. Uh, you mentioned the team. Uh, is there uh, a focus on product, service, uh, CEO? Like, are those also important, or you just want a rock star team and you're willing to go with that? Um, yeah, it's obviously the the, the problem uh, that they're trying trying to tackle the solution, their go to market strategies, uh, the, the the monetization of the business. Obviously, something that we look at. Uh, um, but yeah, it's a combination, uh, how crowded the space is, you know, who your competitors are, how, how you plan on differentiating or, 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 or you know, uh, uh, tackling the, the problem that they're trying to solve differently, right? Uh, so yeah, it's a, a you know, combination of, of different factors. Right? Okay. Do you uh, look to lead rounds? At the seed stage, yeah. So, I mean, the investment dynamics in, in the region are a little bit different. So to give you an idea... Uh, our investment thesis is to invest uh, at the seed stage tickets from uh, fifty up to two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars. That's the stage that we're comfortable uh, leading, and co-invest at you know early stage and early growth uh, tickets ranging uh, from five hundred up to up to a million. Perfect. Uh, do you have preferred terms? So pref shares, common shares. Um, yeah, I mean, so right now, obviously. You know, saves and convertible notes at the seed stage are, are a common practice. Uh, uh, but we do like to, you know, when we do equity investments, uh, have a, a preferred shares with traditionally, you know, pro rata rights. Uh, uh, and uh, depending on the opportunity and, and how we're able to add value, uh, have a, a, a board seat as well. Yeah. I like it. No, that's good. And uh, are you looking to do follow-on investments and what percentage of that would be follow-on? Yeah, so our, our strategy is a, a, a 50% uh, uh, you know, follow-on strategy. So if we invest 250000 at the seed stage, we'll usually reserve 250000 for the next stage. Uh, uh, yeah, that's currently our, our reserve strategy. I love it. 
Okay. Well, um, outside that, I think you've, uh, we've, you've hammered home all of the, uh, the questions I have on the quick snapshot, I guess, uh, questions. And the, the last thing that I want to kind of push into is something more on the personal side. So what is your favorite uh, sports team? Any sport? Any sport, anything, just favorite sports team. Necaxa. Necaxa is a soccer, uh, we'll call it football, obviously, a team here in Mexico. That's my favorite uh, team right now. Okay. Uh, sports, uh, the, uh, the NFL, I'm a huge fan. Patriots, obviously, I lived in Boston, so uh, they're my, my go-to team right now. No, they're, uh, they're, they're okay, too. They're doing all right. Uh, <laughs> What, so on the, on the football side, I just have to ask, so uh, the team, what league are they in? The Mexican League. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not sure I've seen them. I went to, when I was there, I went and catch games. I go catch games all over the world. Wherever I can, I jump in and watch a game. So, so Necaxa was the team of the, uh, the 90s decade. So uh, right oh. now we're, we're trying to have a comeback. Okay. Uh, we got a bit of a, a, a tough last couple of decades but uh <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> sounds like it yeah yeah all right okay that's not a bad thing means you got some room to grow exactly exactly uh, did they like, come like, in like most startups you know yeah exactly were they uh i'm trying to remember but a couple of years ago uh they were in the concaf cup or something or tfc played them is that was that um they were part of the mexico league i don't know if it would have been them probably not but mm. uh I don't know, man. Uh, there, there was a game that was played. I went and saw it, and it was when TFC was really bad, which is our the, football the, club. The uniform is uh, uh, white and red with a lightning. A lightning. Uh, uh, so okay. I'm going to look them up. I'm going to look them up. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Just, just Google uh, Mexico's 90s team. Uh, uh, you'll see Necaxa there uh, uh, for sure. It's uh, it's rare to be um, being referenced that your favorite team is from the '90s that it's trying to make a comeback. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the two most common are uh, America and uh, Chivas, right? Yeah, the, I know them. Yeah, of course. The two yeah. biggest. Pumas is also big in, in Mexico City. Uh, uh, I think Chivas is, is the one that came to Toronto and played. Uh, yeah, I think they were. Tigres yeah. was just in the. Uh, the uh, um, the club uh, World Cup uh, playing uh, against um, what was it? I forgot against who they played. But so Tigres is from uh, the northern part of Mexico. They are currently one of the best teams in in Mexico. But yeah, we have a lot of teams. Uh, yeah, and they've got good soccer. I'm a big fan. Big yeah. fan. Good soccer. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question. Favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie? Um, tough question, man. But I, I'm a big fan of uh, Interstellar. Interstellar. Uh, yeah, I love Interstellar. I love the entire concept, you know, of uh, space travel and and uh, you know different, um, you know, time concepts, everything. Uh, and which character, obviously, Matthew McConaughey's uh, role in there. Um, you know, it's interesting is that, and, and I have to go back to my notes, but yeah. I think you're the third person that I've interviewed that has liked that movie. 
Really? Of okay. all movies, you're like the third person, which is it must be that this must be. And I remember watching this movie. Yeah, it's obviously. Yeah, I've seen it. it oh. But it's had such an impact. I didn't think like, uh, you know what I mean? Like there's so much, so many movies out of there. And out of like 75 people, three of them all picked <laughs> Interstellar. So that's pretty incredible. So what's yours? Oh man, I, I've never been asked. So uh, you're the first one, and I was so I've always been planning to. Uh, uh, I'm like, okay, man. If somebody ever asked me, I should I should probably have. Uh, uh, what is my favorite movie? Like I'm a huge um, uh, uh, Star Trek and um, Jedi and all of those those movies, and I, I like a, a bunch of movies, right? Um, and one of them, and I'm just trying to remember the name right now. So it's totally gonna, um, and I literally was trying to practice this beforehand because I'm like, don't get on the spot. Cause you're on the spot. You're going to, you're going to screw it up. Cause you're going to be all nervous. It was, um, uh, what I really liked about it. It was a piano one where the, the, the guy's learning to play, he's playing the piano and his teacher's like all over him. Um, piano or, or the drums? No, it's, it's the. Isn't it? Um, forgot the uh, forgot the name. Um, but it's not. It's got nothing to do with uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, and that sort of genre, man. No, it was more of uh, the reason why I like this movie, and and I, I picked the character, and I'm going to remember this after we're done talking. Um, it, it was it, the it was the drive. And the um, impact that the musician went through, but he never settled to not want to be the best. And he worked so hard. And even though he took a beating from the coach or from the teacher, and it would look like complete abuse uh, of how this person went through it, but in his, the, the musician's mind couldn't see that it was abuse, just saw the fact that he had a goal and that his goal was the most important thing. And he was going to take whatever information he had to do to get there. So uh, I don't know why I can't think of this movie and it's going to come to me after. So um, and maybe But it was piano, right? So it's not whiplash. Whiplash. That's the one. It was the, it, it's, it's the, the drums. Yes. Like he's a drummer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking piano. I don't know why I was thinking piano, but it, it's. Um, yeah. It, it's I love drummer, it. Whiplash. Movie, yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that. Uh, one, I love the movie, but two, I just, the character of the guy on the drums. Uh, just what he went through and how he went through it. Yeah. And literally like a week ago, I was thinking about this and I'm like, someone's going to ask me this question and I better be able to answer it. And then, then this one popped in my head. So I'm like, oh, that, that's the one. I like that one. So, um, and the reason why I do this, and, and I mentioned this in uh, when I do the chats, is because it reflects a lot of the personality of the person um, when they can figure out a character that matches who they are. I learned so much about it. So if I haven't seen the movie, I go and watch the movie yeah. and uh, I'm like impressed. I was talking with a guy today, JJ out of the US. And uh, when we were talking, I said, I tell your story all the time. Because when I asked him, it might have been the first show I asked him. And he said, uh, Yoda. And I was like, what? You play Yoda? I'm like, you look more like uh, um, uh, one of the other characters. And he's like, no, man, Yoda. And I was like, I love it. <laughs> So today, when I when we had a call um, on the screen behind him, he had Yoda on the screen. So I thought that was pretty awesome. I was like, Yoda, brilliant. So, yeah, I, I think it really depicts a lot of uh, 
uh, the character that you kind of believe in yourself. And what it does for me is it allows me to match up your personality to the type of character. And uh, which I love if that everybody is interstellar and they're all Matthew McConaughey, then this is going to be easy to understand how everybody is. So I won't have to remember anything. I'll be like, everybody's a Matthew done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Interesting exercise, man. But I mean, (laughs) there are a lot of great movies out there. So, uh, uh, if I told you, you know, that my favorite movie was The Lion King and I wanted to play Simba, I mean, uh, then you, you think differently of me, right? Well, uh, I might think that, no, at the end he came through. So uh, <laughs> I'll say that you might be a bit of a shark and a bit of a bad guy at the beginning, but uh, at the end you came through and uh, you, you helped out. So uh, I guess there's a win in there in the end, but uh, we got to yeah. wait for it. Exactly. Well, either way, Carlos, it was a pleasure. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. We learned a lot about the background, the banking and everything else and how you guys are focused and how the fund's working. Very exciting. Uh, you're laying new ground in, uh, in Mexico with this and, I, and uh, we wish you all the success. I know we're going to get to chat more. Hopefully we'll see you on the 25th. And uh, in the fashion of our show, uh, we like to give you the last word. So anything you want to share to other investors or to entrepreneurs, um, over to you. Yeah, I know. Thanks. It was a great time, Jeffrey, uh, getting a chance to do this. Uh, You know, we're always looking to connect with, you know, people in the space. Uh, If you're not looking at Latin America, I'd encourage you, obviously, you know, the the market opportunity, the dynamics are are there. And there's a huge opportunity to continue funding uh, uh, in the region. And uh, Feel free to, you know, reach out and, and uh, we're always looking to explore like this, you know, opportunities to meet people from different parts of the world and, and uh, find opportunities to collaborate in, in, in this ecosystem. I love it. Well, yeah. well, we get this blasted out there. Hopefully uh, we can help make lots of new connections and uh, get those conversations going. So uh, again, Carlos, thank you very much. And uh, we'll be in touch and we'll send you the, the video once we push it all out. Uh, we started putting them on uh, the podcast uh, on the podcast channels. That'll take a little bit longer because yeah. supporters fund website, they're all loading in. And then the other side, it takes a bit longer. So it's all about releasing content in a nice sequence. So we'll keep yeah. you posted and we look forward to chatting again. Sounds great. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. All right. Bye. Have a great day. Okay, that was brilliant. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and I can't believe I couldn't remember the name of Whiplash and that he was uh, not playing the piano, that he was playing the drums. One of those days, I guess. Uh, but uh, either way, it was awesome to chat with him and, and Carlos' background, really exploring that side of fintech and diving into the past experience of through the banking systems and understanding that and how much that's going to make a difference in his drive. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, being in the blockchain fintech, it's really advanced and, and, you know, they've got a, a really good structure on the types of companies they're looking for in that seed stage. Uh, so pretty exciting. So, uh, stay tuned and, uh, we'll share that soon, but thank you everybody for joining in.